Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. I've mentioned this before, but I'm the youngest of five kids, and my siblings and parents uh, live in Chicagoland, St. Louis, Kansas City, and Austin, Texas. And at various times, family members have come up to visit us in Green Bay, and some of those times have been during winter months. And whenever they leave us during those winter months, they basically have this same saying of, we love you, but we're never again coming in the winter. What were we thinking? So this past uh, Friday morning, my brother sends a picture out to our family, kind of a group picture, and this is it up here. Um, It's a picture of his snow-covered car. He's in Chicagoland, and so he sent that. And then my dad responded with another picture. My dad lives in Kansas City, and he sent this picture of snow on his back porch. And so, Wendy, don't switch the slide yet. So I reported back to them, and I said to them, Wow, remind me never to visit you guys in the winter. Here is a picture of Green Bay this morning. So, uh, yeah, my house is the second bungalow down the beach. And uh, at least this is what it was like on the east side of Green Bay. I don't know what it was like on the west side of Green Bay. And then my sister in Kansas City responded with this picture. Really? Come on. Really? Come on. My family is from Missouri, um, and Missouri prides itself on being known as the show-me state. Uh, It was called the show-me state because a Missouri congressman, Willard Vandiver, uh, in a speech in 1899 at the Naval Banquet said, frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I am from Missouri. You have to show me. In other words, that fancy talk, don't convince me. You got to show me. I got to see it in order to believe it. Evidently, that phrase was pretty influential on the Jackson kids' life because we are not gullible at all. We don't believe anything until we can see it. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been studying Jesus' farewell address to his apostles. As Jesus starts his good pies, he makes some pretty ominous prophecies about his death that he's going away. Then he says that one of the apostles is going to betray him and he sends him off. And then when Peter pledges his undying support to Jesus, Jesus says to Peter, man, you're not even going to make it 24 hours. Within 24 hours, you're not going to only deny me once, not only twice, but three times in the next 24 hours, you're going to deny me. And so you can imagine how discouraging this is as they're enjoying this this feast, this banquet that is supposed to be a celebration of God's deliverance. But then we get to John chapter 14, and Jesus turns the tables a bit. We studied this in depth last week, but in John 14, 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. 
Even though I am leaving you, even though one of you goes to betray me, even though all of you will deny me, don't be troubled. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. And then Jesus undergirds this command to believe in God, to believe in him, to not be troubled with some audacious claims. The first claim that he has is that heaven is for real, that it is the Father's house, and in the Father's house there are many rooms. And the second claim, just as important as the first, is that Jesus is going there to prepare a place for us, and he will bring us to that house for all eternity. And so in essence, Jesus is saying to the disciples, I know it looks like it's snowing outside, but the sun is on the horizon. And Philip responds, show me. (laughs) Okay, Jesus, you want us to believe that we shouldn't be troubled? You want us to believe in you and in the Father for all eternity? You want us to believe there's a heaven and that we're going there? Prove it to us. Frothy eloquence He says, neither convinces nor satisfies me. I'm from Missouri. You have to show me. Show us the Father, he says, and we will believe all your crazy claims. And this is how Jesus responds. And so if you would open up to John chapter 14, it's page 901 in the Red Bible, page 1070 in the Large Print Blue Bible, and page 1164 in the children's Bible. We're going to overlap a little bit with last week's passage, but um, I think you'll see it's for a good reason. So we're going to start in John 14, verse 4, and we'll read through verse 11. This is God's word. Jesus says, And you know the way to where I am going, talking about the Father's house. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that for those who come here this morning that are maybe investigating God, that they would see you with fresh eyes, that they would know you with a deeper heart, Lord God. I pray for those who come today who maybe have been in relationship with you for years or decades, but maybe the relationship has grown silent or cold, that you will revolutionize what we think it means to see you and to know you and to believe in you, and that you're grace would extend to us to make us 
see and know and believe in you in better ways than we ever have before. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The movie Heaven is for Real came out in 2014, and it was second in the box office, only behind Captain America. And I think many people went to go see the movie because although they believed that heaven is for real, they just wanted to make sure. (laughs) Have you ever wondered if heaven is for real? Even if you believe in heaven, have you ever doubted it, even for a season or for a moment? Take it even one step further. If you believe in God, have you ever doubted the existence of God? Have you ever wondered if God is real? I know I have, and I take great comfort knowing that the scriptures teach us all of the apostles did as well. Thomas is probably the most famous doubter of all the apostles, but today it's Philip's turn to look like a maroon, (laughs) to verbalize his doubts. Philip, in the context of John 14, says, Jesus, if you want us to believe that there's the Father's house in heaven, if you want us to believe that you're going to bring us there, if you want us to believe these things, you have to prove it to me. You have to show it to me. I want you to show us the Father. I want you to make God appear before us. And then we will believe with certainty that all these claims are true. And so Jesus graciously and mercifully doesn't zap Philip into oblivion but instead enters into their doubts, enters into their questions, and engages the conversation, not only to validate these amazing claims he just spoke, but also to revolutionize what we think it means to know God and to see God and to believe in God. And so those are the things we want to look at today. The first Jesus revolutionizes is the way we think about knowing God. What do you think it means to know God? Today, I'm going to get a little bit Greeky geeky on you. Uh, Usually, I'm just geeky. You get the Greeky part for free today. Uh, The New Testament is written in what's called Koine Greek, and there are certain passages in Scripture where you don't get to appreciate the depth of what's being communicated simply by reading the English. By going deeper into the Greek, you can really appreciate how profound the things are that Jesus is saying. And this is one of those passages today. So we're going to get a little bit greeky geeky. Uh, one, of those, one of those profound things, for example, is in verse 4 through 7 today, you'll see that uh, in the passage, the word no, K-N-O-W, appears six times. Three times in verse 4 through 5, the word no comes from the Greek word oida. And then three times in verse 7, the word no comes from the Greek word gnosko. And the question is, why is there a change in the Greek word that's being used between verses 4 and 5 and verse 7? Well, let's look at the first usage of this word to know. It's the word oida. And so if you look up here, uh, you'll see that first word is kind of what it looks like in Greek, and then the transliteration, what it looks like in English. The verses, and then how the ESV translated, that's the version of the Bible you have in the pew in front of you, and then, and then you'll see the definition. So this will pop up several times. That's kind of what it's going to look like. So this first one, oida, is to know, and it's to know intellectually, and it appears in verses 4 through 5. So let's look at verses 4 through 5. Jesus says, and you know, that's oida, you know intellectually, the way to where I am going. 
which again is heaven. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know, again, oida, intellectually, where you are going. How can we know, oida, intellectually, the way? Thomas is saying, Jesus, we can't discern all these riddles you're throwing at us. Like, we don't understand what you're talking about in these things. How do we know where you're going? We don't know where you're going. How can we know how to get there? We don't know this stuff. And what's so interesting is that Jesus responds to Thomas's questioning, Thomas's word of questioning how, if he knows the way, with a different word for to know, which is the word gnosko. And gnosko is used in verse 7. And it means to know intimately, to be closely acquainted with, to be familiar with, to help you grasp the depth of intimacy that Jesus is talking about with this word gnosko. Let me show you how gnosko is used in another passage in the New Testament. If you turn to Matthew 1, you don't need to do it, but if you turn there, an angel appears to Joseph, Mary's fiance. And the angel says to Joseph, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And then listen closely to this. It says, Joseph took Mary to be his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Now, when it says Joseph knew her not, it doesn't mean that Joseph did not know her. He obviously knew her if he was marrying her. What it means is that Joseph did not know Mary in the most intimate way possible between a husband and a wife. He didn't know his wife in a way that would produce a child. This is the level of intimacy that Gnosko can communicate. The deepest level of intimacy between two people. And so we look back, verse 7, Jesus says to Thomas, if you have known me, that's gnosko love, if you've known me intimately, you would have known, intimately known my father also. From now on, or it can also be translated, assuredly, I love that, you do gnosko know him and have seen him. What Jesus is teaching us in verse 4 through 7 is that our intellectual knowing about God is right and it is important and it is good, but it's not enough. Knowing about God intellectually does not satisfy our souls. We were not just made to know about God in our head. We were made to know God intimately and personally and experientially. Academic knowledge is never enough for those relationships where we want to know people deeper. Let me give you some examples. When I get home at the end of the day, and I'm pulling up the street, if the kids are outside, they'll yell, Daddy's home! And they'll start running, right? Unless they have electronics, and then that throws everything off. But that's another sermon for another day. But, but they'll, Daddy! And I'll pull up, and I'll get out of the car, and they'll run up to me, and I'll, I'll, I'll be there with arms stretched out. Imagine if I, if I welcome them with arms stretched out, and in one hand, I had my resume and personality profile. In the other hand, I had a document, of the, a, 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 a pub, uh, Excel sheet of my daily agenda. Imagine, I'm like, here you go, here you go, this is what you get. This is me, this is daddy, right? You see, that's just giving information to them. That's just giving them oida, intellectual knowledge about me. What kind of father would I be if I just gave them myself in that way? 
what children would they turn out to be? My kids don't just want oida knowledge about me. They want gnosko knowledge of me. They want to be hugged on. They want me to kiss their boo-boos. They want to show me their paper airplane that they made. They want to tell me a joke, show me a, a magic trick. They want to enjoy my presence. They want to experience my delight in them. Let me give you another example. When I started, uh, when I first met Trish, um, I didn't really have romantic feelings for her. Sorry, it didn't happen that way. Um, oh boy. All right, maybe, maybe you shouldn't have said that out loud. Anyways, I didn't have, there's reasons for it. Anyways, but as I started to develop, uh, and, and while I got to know her, what I learned over the course of this month at a camp is I learned a lot of things. I learned a lot of oida knowledge. I learned um, that, you know, she's from Fall Creek, Wisconsin. She's about five foot six inch tall. She has dark hair and she has a great jump shot. That's what I learned, right? But as I started to develop romantic feelings for her, that oida intellectual knowledge was not enough to satisfy my heart. I wanted Gnosko knowledge. I wanted to know what it was like to hold her hand. I wanted to smile with her and laugh with her. I wanted to enjoy her presence, and I wanted her to enjoy mine. This is why we date. This is why we get married, because oida knowledge about a person, although it is necessary and good, it is not enough. Our hearts long to Gnosko intimately know someone And the one that we are created for the most, God himself says, I want to know you in that way, and I want you to know me in that way. Maybe you're here today, and you oida know a lot about God, like you oida know a lot about your favorite celebrity. And intellectual knowledge of God is good, it is important, and we should foster it, but it is not enough to quench the thirst of our souls. You see, it is completely possible to know all about God intellectually, but not to know God intimately or personally. We were made to know God at a deeper level, to experience him with our heart and soul intimately and personally and even experientially. And so let me ask, do you know God in this way? Have you known him as your Abba Father, as your friend, as the lover of your soul? Maybe you're here today and you can remember times where you knew God intimately, but you've lost that love and feeling, you know, the, who's that, the Righteous Brothers or something? Is that right? So, oh, that love and feeling. Maybe you have lost that love and feeling. Christians, when we come to God's word, when we come to God in prayer, both on Sunday mornings, but also in our devotions throughout the week, We have to be so careful that we're not just coming to God's word for intellectual knowledge, but that we're actually coming to know the God of the universe intimately, experientially, tenderly. When we read God's word, when we pray, it should be like a child running to his father who returns home from work. Abba, Father, I'm coming. Let's talk. I want to dwell with you. I want to sit on your lap, sit in your arms, tell you about my day, hear what you have to say to me. This is what it should look like to commune with the living God. 
And so how can we know God? Well, we can know God intellectually, and that's important. We need to foster that. But we must also know God intimately and relationally and experientially. Jesus revolutionizes what Philip thinks it means to know God, but he also revolutionizes what it means to see God. Again, we're staying greeky geeky for this passage, and one of the fascinating things in this passage is that Philip and Jesus use two different Greek words for the word sight. The first one we'll look at is Philip. It's the Greek word dikeomai, uh, which means to show, which, or the ESV translates it to show, and it means to see something visibly, to put it on display, a demonstration, to expose to the eyes, like so your retina see it. So like, you know, the, 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 the curtains up here, or you see the, the, the carpet squares up there, you can see them with your eyes because of the light. They're on show for you. This is the word that, that Philip uses in verse 8, and then Jesus, in quoting Philip, uses in verse 9. So verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show, Dikeomai, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And then the end of verse 9, again, this is Jesus quoting Philip. Jesus says, how can you say, Philip, show, Dikeomai, us the Father? Again, Philip is responding to Jesus' big claims that he uh, is going to the Father's house, that he's going to make a way for them to get there, that he's going to come back and bring them. And because of all of these things, they need not let their hearts be troubled, right? He, it's kind of like uh, he's saying, hey, guys, don't worry. I got a plan. It's so crazy. It might just work. And they're like, all right, what's Jesus up to now? Does he really know what he's doing? Does he really know what's going on? Has he lost his mind? And so Philip, my fellow Missourian, says, prove it to me. Show me God. Show me God right here. And I will believe all this crazy stuff you're speaking to us. Here's the problem. Even though God always sees us, we can never see God. There's a few reasons for that. The first reason we cannot see God is because God does not have a body like man. Jesus says that God is the spirit and that a spirit does not have flesh and bones. Paul describes God as the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, sometimes the Bible will talk about God's body parts, like the hand of the Lord. And this is what theologians call an anthropomorphism, big word. Uh, we're getting really geeky today. And uh, it is it is giving God a human characteristic. And God does this as a form of baby talk to help us better understand who God is according to things that we're familiar with, like our hands. And so we can't see God, first off, because God does not have a body. But secondly, we cannot see God or the full glory of God because if we did, we would perish 1 Timothy 6 says that God dwells in unapproachable light, unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Exodus 33, 20, the Lord said to Moses, you cannot see my face. Another anthropomorphism to communicate God's glory. You cannot see my face and live. Why can't we see the full glory of God? Because God is holy and we are not. Our sin has made God's presence lethal. <laughs> to be in the presence of the glory of God would be like a fair-complected kid trying to walk on the sun. It's not going to go well. 
We cannot come into the presence of God and live. And so Philip's request to see God is impossible, both because God does not have a body, but because also Philip is a sinful human being, and he would evaporate if God appeared in all of his glory. But we can see God in a better way, and this is what Jesus refers to. Jesus uses the word to see orao, which is to see perceptively, that is to see with understanding. For example, I mentioned these panels on the wall. If you said, hey, what are these panels on the wall for? And I said, well, the panels on the wall are to absorb the sound from the band so it doesn't bing off every, you know, every wall and get crazy and stuff like that. And, and, and if I said that to you, you might respond to me, oh, I see, right? That's, that's how we respond to things like, oh, I see. When you say that, what you're communicating is not, oh, I can finally see them, right? Because you saw them before. What you're saying is, I now understand them. I now understand why they're there. I can comprehend the purpose of them and even maybe some of the composition and the character of them. Philip uses the word dikeomai, which simply means to show. But Jesus uses his word horao, which means to perceive with understanding. And so let's look back at this passage again. Verse 7. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's hurrah. You've seen him perceptively. You've seen him with understanding. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us, I just display for us the father, and it is enough. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, hurrah, with perception, has seen the father, again, hurrah, how can you simply just say, show us the Father? Let me help us under, try to understand the difference between these words. Um, February 6, 2011. Anyone know what happened on that date? Packers were in the Super Bowl. And uh, seven days prior to that date, uh, my son Cooper was born. And so uh, we gathered around our TV with Trisha's parents to watch the Super Bowl and because we wanted to raise our child right, there was our seven-day-old child watching the Super Bowl with us, right? Now, what did Cooper see? Uh, Cooper saw a bunch of strangely dressed men throwing a brown, you know, ball around and ferociously hitting one another. That's what Cooper saw, right, as he looked at the TV. What did, what did Trish and I saw see? Well, we saw the exact same thing, right? We saw a bunch of strangely dressed men throwing a brown ball around and hitting each other ferociously. We saw the exact same thing, but we perceived so much more, right? We perceived a first down, a touchdown, a trick play. We perceived the Packers winning the Super Bowls. We understood the weight of what was going on. I don't know if you've ever watched the Super Bowl, and you've ever seen, like, at the game, there's, like, this three-year-old kid with their own seat, and you're like, what a waste of money, right? Like, that kid doesn't get what's going on right? Because they can see it, but they can't see it. They don't understand the weight of the event. What Jesus is telling us in this passage is that we don't, you don't, seeing God, actually, let me back up here. Just look, I want you to look at verse 9 again. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, perceived me, has seen the Father, has perceived the Father, what Jesus is saying here is, I don't want you just to see God with your eyes. I want so much more for you than that. I want you to perceive the character of God, the love of God, the personality of God. 
deep in your soul, I want you to understand the weight of his glory. I love this line here, um, verse eight, how verse 8 ends. Philip said to him, Lord, show us, again, display for us the Father. And then I love this part. He says, and it is enough for us. And Jesus' soft rebuke is basically saying, Philip, a visible manifestation of God is not enough. What you ask for is not too big, it is too small. God doesn't want you just to see him visually. He wants you to know him in your soul. He wants you to see him perceptively, to know how glorious he is. You know, the famous words of the psalmist says that we should taste and see that the Lord is good. Friends, we cannot taste God with our tongue, and we cannot see God with our eyes, but we can perceive by knowing Christ, the character of God. And we can taste and know and see that the Lord is good. Again, friends, when you come to God through prayer and through his word, do not be satisfied with intellectual knowledge or a visible showing of God, which will not happen because it cannot. Seek intimate knowledge of God and invisible understanding of the goodness and the weight of God's glory and his love for you. And so you see how Jesus is pressing the apostles deeper than even their superficial requests. Jesus presses them deeper in what it means to see the Father and to know the Father. And finally, he presses them deeper in what it means to, to believe in the Father. Verse 10, Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. You know, nowhere in the scriptures is the word Trinity used. But passages like this make absolutely no sense if the Trinity is not true. The Trinity is the, is the concept that there is one God and three persons, Father, Spirit, and Son. John 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The Trinity is a divine mystery that we try to explain with really kind of, I guess, pathetic metaphors. We'll say things like, it's like a clover, three leaves on a clover, right? And each leaf is one of the persons of the Trinity. Or it's like, it's like H2O, you know, there, there's, there's, there's water, there's ice, there's steam, but it's all H2O. So one substance, three different. But honestly, all of these fail to communicate the mystery of the Trinity, I remember when I first uh, was ordained, which was like the, the pinnacle of my theological knowledge, because I had to study up for that. Uh, a, a little seven-year-old girl came up to me, and she said, Pastor Dan, can you explain the Trinity? And so I looked at her, and I'm thinking, how would I, what would I, and I looked at her, I'm like, no, <laughs> like I can't. One God, three persons, but how do you get beyond, I mean, it's gloriously mysterious. I, I, I'm, I'm reminded of the, the phrase, I didn't come up with it, but a God that is small enough to be comprehended is not a God big enough to be worshipped. Our God is majestic, Trinitarian. Jesus' statement in verse 10, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, only makes sense that the Trinity is true. There are many other biblical passages that communicate this as well, but we don't have time. So continuing verse 10, 
Jesus says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. I don't know if you caught this, but this sentence ends differently than we would expect it to. We would expect the sentence to go like this. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me speaks his words. That's what we would expect it to say, right? If, if it were to be consistent. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, does his works. And the question is, why? Well, for God and for God alone... You can use the word speaking and doing interchangeably. <laughs> because for God to speak something, it's for God to do it, right? Like if we were in here and the room was dark and I said, let there be lights. There would be this awkward pause as I walk over and go push on the light button, right? God says, let there be light and it illumines the universe. <laughs> for God to speak is for God to do. And the same is true of Jesus. Remember when the storm was raging and the disciples were freaking out and Jesus is like, ah, be quiet, right? And the storm just stops. He speaks and it happens. Or when he comes to the lame man and says, pick up your mat and walk. Boom, it's done. Or I love the one where the officers conspire with the chief priests to go and arrest Jesus because he's claiming to be the Christ. And they come back empty-handed and, and you know, the, the, the high priests are there, you know, with their mustache twirling it and saying, why didn't you bring him back? And they respond, no one ever spoke the way this man does. <laughs> Jesus, by the power of his word, can change the weather. Jesus, by the power of his word, can heal a lame man. Jesus, by the power of his word, can change the hearts of his enemies. That's why Jesus who is God in the flesh, can interchangeably use the words speak and do because they are one and the same for Jesus. And so verse 10, as he continues, and he says, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Jesus is reminding Philip and reminding us that the attributes of God also reside in Jesus and that when Jesus speaks, things happen and there is no lag time. For him to speak is for him to do because he is God in the flesh. He is a part of this trinity. As we move on, verse 10, remember it starts, Jesus says, do you not believe, that's our focus, believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And then we get to verse 11. And Jesus says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is saying to to Philip, believe I and the Father are united, that we are one in the Trinity. Believe this. At the very least, believe it because the miracles that I have done, because the miracles I have done, some that we just listed, authenticate that I am God because these are things only God can do. And so our final Greeky geeky word of the day, I feel like this is Sesame Street, um, is pisto, which means to believe. And to define it is to think to be true and or to trust in. And so what, what Jesus is asking Philip and the apostles and us to believe is to not just think something to be true, but to entrust our life to. To entrust our life to the belief that Jesus is God in the flesh. To entrust our life to believe that Jesus is a wonderful Savior. To believe 
and to entrust our life that our Trinitarian God, Gnosko, knows us. Knows us intimately, even better than we know ourselves. He knows your struggles. He knows your doubts. Friends, God knows your fears. Not only that, the Trinitarian God, Horao, sees us. He sees us with full understanding. Your soul, your, your perverseness, your depravity lays naked before the eyes of God. And yet, because of his great love for you, he sent Jesus to rescue you and to bring you to himself forever. Friends, do you believe, not only believe in it to be true, but do you entrust yourselves to these truths? Do you entrust yourself to the truth that Jesus died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God for our sin? Do you entrust yourself to the belief that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and is ruling and reigning and preparing a place for us to come home for all eternity? Jesus doesn't just want us to believe that it's true. Jesus wants to entrust our everything to that. The best illustration I have for this, and I've shared it before, but I can't think of a better illustration. It's the story of a 19th century tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. On June 30th, 1859, he became the first man to walk on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Over 25,000 people gathered to watch him walk that 1,100 feet suspended on a tiny rope and over a 160-foot drop down to these raging waters. And he worked without a safety net or any kind of harness, and so if he slipped, it would have been fatal. He would have been dead. When he safely reached the Canadian side, the crowd burst into a roar of celebration. In the days that followed, he'd actually go back and cross Niagara Falls many times on the rope. I guess since it's up, might as well do it some more. And one time he walked across on stilts. One time he actually took a chair and a stove out with him and he cooked some eggs and ate breakfast out on the tightrope. One time he pushed a wheelbarrow across with 350 pounds. I don't know if I could do that on a downhill slope, but he did it across a tightrope. Here's actually a picture of him right there and the people watching. When he crossed the rope uh, and got to the other side with this wheelbarrow, he he asked the crowds, he says, do you believe, do you believe that I could push this wheelbarrow across with a person in it? And they all yelled, yes, we believe, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. Intellectually, they believe, yes, you can do it, you can do it. They saw, he saw one guy who was supremely enthusiastic, and so he looked at him, like, do you believe I could push a man across? He's like, yep, I believe. And he's like, get in the wheelbarrow. You see, there's one degree of belief that is to think something to be true, right? There's another degree of belief that is to entrust your very life to it. Jesus is calling us to get into the wheelbarrow. When Jesus calls us to believe in him, Jesus is not just asking us to believe that the things he says is true, but to stake our very lives in eternity on these truths that he is claiming. I know it is so scary for us to relinquish control to to another. But there is no more wonderful, joyful, and secure place to be than to believe in Jesus, both thinking his claims to be true, but entrusting him with our everything. Have you ever climbed into the wheelbarrow? Today can be the day Jesus can carry you over the pains of life and the pains of death, and he can carry you over to the other side safely.
Let me end with this. This decade has completely redefined the word friend. <laughs> if I asked you, are we friends? <laughs> what might I be referring to? Facebook, right? As Facebook friends, we can gather knowledge of one another, intellectual information, like where we live, where we work, how old we are, things like that. We can see pictures of you at Disneyland or Colorado or what you ate for dinner last night. I don't know why you post that, but thank you. And we can even try to make people believe that we are skinnier or happier or more put together and feel more blessed than we actually do. There's a new TV show on called God Friended Me. Um, I have not seen it. I'm not sure if I will or not. But it's a story about an atheist who has a radio talk show, and he calls himself the Millennial Prophet. And his tagline is, there is no God, and that's okay. Anyways, his life's turned upside down because God friends him on Facebook, and he tries to decline it, but God keeps friending him and then sends him messages, and all these significant events start to happen. And so now he's starting to doubt his doubts and starting to believe that maybe there is a God. Maybe you're here today and you're, you're doubting the existence of God, doubting the existence of heaven. And you think, man, if only God did this to me. Maybe God friended me on Facebook and sent me messages through Facebook and all these, all these signs, then I would believe. What today's passage teaches us is that a Facebook friendship with God is far too superficial, far too distant, and far too impersonal of a relationship. God doesn't want us just to know about him. God wants us to know him. God doesn't just want us to see evidence of him. He wants us to perceive the weightiness of his glory. And God doesn't just want us to believe he is true. God wants us to entrust our souls to him. In the next chapter, John 15, Jesus is going to call us his friend probably in a lot more profound way than Facebook friending. But we are not only friends with God, we are also called his bride. And we are called his beloved children. These are two categories of relationships that are so intimate, they could never be regulated by status on Facebook. Friends, if you want to know God, study to know him intimately. If you want to know God, look to see him perceptively. And if you want to know God, believe and entrust him with your everything. Let's pray. God of the universe, holy, mighty, and majestic. We are so thankful that you do not just want to know us on a superficial basis. And you don't want us to know you on a superficial basis. But you actually want to dwell in us. You want us to ponder your majesty. Lord God, I pray for us as a church. God, I pray for those who don't know you, that they would trust in you, that they would jump in the wheelbarrow, Lord. But I pray for those of us who do know you, who maybe have lost that love and feeling, God, that we would come to your word with new eyes and new hearts, ready to know you intimately, ready to experience you as the father who comes home and is longing for his children. That we may come and that we may taste and see that the Lord is good and that we are yours. Our hearts are too weak to do this on their own. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray 
Come help us through your spirit to know and to see and to believe God in a way with a greater depth than we ever had before. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.